Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. What a beautiful picture of the praise and worship of God and the joy that awaits us and one I think that we get a foretaste of here as we gather together to worship God. And that's one of the things that makes this day a wonderful day. This is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a tale of two cars. Both of these cars were many decades old. Neither of these cars ran. They both sat in, uh, together in an old covered carport. And they hadn't run for years. It was going to take a lot of work to get them going again. And one of those cars was given to my dad. 1960 Chevrolet Impala. He took it. He restored it. He transformed it by renewing it. First of all, under the hood. So it got new battery, new belt, new hoses, new plugs, started running again. But he didn't stop there. He started working on some of the cosmetic features. So uh, the upholstery got redone, then moved more to the exterior. It got a new paint job. Two-tone, turquoise and white. New tires, nice white walls. Now the car sticks out for all the right reasons. Now it's nice. It's well-maintained. Now it's parade-worthy. Now it shines. The other car? Well, its story is very short. Last time I saw it, it was still in that old garage, not running. And that was many years ago. Well, if you get your Bibles out and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, we're going to be looking at that passage in just a moment, and actually a few other scriptures, so your Bible will be helpful uh, for sure today. You've noticed these banners that we've had up here all year that say renew. If you're like me, you probably have a hard time seeing what's right below it, and that is Romans 12, 2. We've heard a lot of sermons in the last uh, few weeks about this great theme of renew. And I'd like to just piggyback on that this morning for a little bit and talk about renewal and really focus in on Romans 12, verse 2. We hear this, uh, uh, these couple of verses read quite a lot here, and I'd like for us to listen again. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Hear the words of the Lord through Paul. Therefore I urge you, brothers through the compassions of God, to offer your bodies as a living, holy, God-pleasing sacrifice, your thoughtful worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, so that you may discern what God's will is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. And... Uh, I, I know you don't remember this, but a few months ago I actually preached from uh, verse 1 and really focused on that question of why. Why offer our bodies as a sacrifice? Because of God's mercy. 
This morning, I'd like for us to think about the what and the how and the really for what purpose questions and focus in here on verse 2. If you look on the back of your order of worship, you'll see an outline there that you can follow along with, maybe make some notes to yourself if you like. Verse 2, let's take up the first part of that verse. Do not be modeled after this world or this age. Or as J.B. Phillips translates it, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. First of all, that word world can just be translated, should really just be translated as age. That's all the word means. Uh, the Latin translation there is cyclum, and we get the word secular from that. An age by itself, long or short, is just a period of time that can pass away. And that's what Paul means here, because he says this age, not the age to come. And part of Paul's point here is simply the futility of conforming to this secular age. An age that will soon be obsolete. It's kind of like rearranging the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship, right? What's the point? Or maybe it's like trying to keep up with the world of fashion. You know, what's in today is going to be out tomorrow. And this may shock some of you, but I've never really been overly concerned about fashion. All right? If I have a fashion principle, it's this. It's futile to try to keep up. In fact, fashion is cyclical. So if you hold on to things long enough, they may come back into fashion. This blazer is a case in point. I got this 25 years ago. I was a baby. I was actually a senior in high school when I got this blazer. And I'm telling you, I've seen on TV some of these wide lapels actually coming back. So I think this is cutting edge, all right? I remember an LTC convention a couple of years ago. Uh, we were in the common room eating, and Dolores came up to me, and she complimented my T-shirt and said, that's, that's really nice. It's kind of retro. Reminds me of the 90s. I said, that's because it's from the 90s. Another t-shirt that I had in high school and still have. Bugle Boy. They don't make them like they used to. I've given up hope for my parachute pants, though. But again, the point here, what Paul is saying is that this world, as it exists right now, is just one age that's not going to last. And that's one reason why we should not seek to conform ourselves to it. It's been said that whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. Second, and more importantly, we should not be modeled after this age, not only because it's temporary, but also because the values of this world are, by and large, antithetical to the values of God. And surely this point is obvious to us all. Secular society is not founded on the pursuit of or enjoyment of God, but is centered on self. We're probably aware of so many ways in which the values of the world and of God clash that it's unnecessary to try to list them all. What's not so obvious to us, though, and is in fact a little scary, is how much we are modeled after this age. 
without even realizing it. The language of being formed, molded, suggests that a shaping is taking place. Don't let the world mold you into its image. A little shaping here, a little there. No single change was all that noticeable. But a thousand little tweaks later, and our form becomes unrecognizable. And we never even knew it. Sometimes we don't realize it until we travel across country how thick our accent really is. Are we so enmeshed in this world and so conformed to this age that we don't even know it? And so I mean this question metaphorically. Do we have a secular accent and fail to realize it? Do not be conformed to this age. Sometimes the differences between the heavenly city's accent and the worldly city's accent are so subtle that they go unnoticed. But the differences mean everything. For example, the world's emphasis on tolerance sounds good, and it is derived from Christian principles. But when pushed to an extreme, it undermines the very concept of truth and our will to proclaim it. It obscures the real meaning of love and hinders our will to exercise it. This age is trying to shape us into its form, and I think it's doing a pretty good job of it. And so we must be alert to these messages. Did anybody catch the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago? If you did, then you know what I'm talking about. I think the advertisements are a bigger attraction than the game. And those advertisements come with messages, messages that we need to hear so that we can assess them and, if necessary, counter them. And we receive the messages while we're sitting there watching, messages that some, I think, are frightening, some are just untrue, and some of them are antithetical to the gospel that we profess. I sometimes get tired of being the media critic in our house. I think I'm not the only one that gets tired of me being the media critic. So when we watched the Super Bowl, I kind of said to myself, I'm going to be quiet and, you know, just uh, let it go and not uh, point out everything that I see going on there. And we had a small group of people over for the Super Bowl to, to watch it with us. And um, a Google ad came on. And I've seen it since then. Maybe some of you have seen this too, where... Uh, there's an old man talking, and uh, the computer screen shows him all of these pictures and, and photographs of his own life. And it starts uh, showing all of these details and, and writing out all of these details of his life, minute details, and, and of his wife. And it's played for um, sentimentality. Okay. Um, about five seconds into the commercial, it was the 11-year-old among us who spoke up first and said, ooh, that's creepy. How does it know all of that about this guy? How does it have all those pictures, you know? Thank you, Clayton, for pointing that out. Um, I think it was great. I'm glad that, you know, there was someone at least kind of pushing back and thinking about how frightening that might be, okay? There was a Facebook ad that I remember that came on. And it was really promoting Facebook's ability to unite everyone and create these uh, communities of love and togetherness and face-to-face -face fellowship. 
Um, I guess that Facebook improves some people's lives overall. I don't know, but uh, Facebook and social media actually have a well-deserved reputation for creating hostility and increasing the divisiveness in our society. So yeah, some ads just are untrue. But again, my whole point here is the propaganda, the messages that we're being fed by this world. In fact, in a consumerist culture, marketing aims, think about this, aims to make us discontent with what we have. It aims to make us dissatisfied and to want something that we never even dreamed of wanting before. Brothers and sisters, that is not a Christian virtue, all right? So then today's new desire becomes tomorrow's necessity. Or when we allow ourselves and our children to be enamored by technology for its own sake, or by celebrity, especially the 15 minutes of fame variety, then we have conformed to the world, and we have succumbed to its values, and we have ourselves to blame. When we waste hour after hour of our lives in front of a TV watching things that can never produce anything virtuous, we have yielded the advantage to the enemy. Now, not like you know, TV or technology in and of themselves uh, are evil, but they become subtle means for molding us into the image, not of Christ, but of the world. They make our brains and our souls into these passive recipients of all the worst that the world has to offer, from the merely inane to the positively wicked. Do not be conformed to this age. Let's move on to the next part of the verse there. And before we talk about transformation, we must talk about what makes transformation happen in the first place. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Transformation by renovation. Transformation of life by the renovation of the mind. Renewing of your minds. Paul coins a new word here, never before used in Greek. And it's the word renew. Sometimes we think of church words or Bible words justification, sanctification, baptism, those sorts of words. Those were all actually common words for Greek pagans. But this new word that Paul coins here, this is a real church word. This is a real Bible word, uniquely Christian, renew. Have you ever renovated something? Maybe a house. I know some of you have uh, renewed or restored an old car. How do you renovate or renew an old house or a car? Well, depending on the state of disrepair, it may not be easy. You can't get it done in an hour or even a day. And even though it's a process and doesn't happen overnight, there will hopefully be a real objective moment when you can step back and say it's been renewed or renovated. And once renewed, my question is, does the renovation stop there? No. You have to maintain the job that has been done. You keep the car running on the inside and clean on the outside. My point is, things that have once been renovated need to be maintained. They'll require some sort of continuous care, maybe constant 
care. And the care doesn't stop with one aspect of the car. When one part has been renovated, it opens your eyes to the car's potential. It's a constant process that involves not just one aspect of the car, but the whole thing, inside and out. Some of you may own a home that's a permanent fixer-upper. Although there's satisfaction with the progress that's been made, you can always look and find something else that needs improvement. Fellas, maybe some of your honey-do lists are never empty. Well, the Apostle Paul, of course, is not talking about the renewing of a house or a car, but the renewing of the mind. How is your mind renewed? Well, it's an inward spiritual rebirth. And it begins when we give our lives to God, when you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Like the house renovation, I think there's a point when you can look at a person and say, this person has been reborn. That conversion is internal. But like the house or car, this initial conversion demands constant, ongoing attention. There must be a continual process of renewal. No maintenance-free siding here. The renewing of the mind. If the mind is renewed by that initial conversion, by receiving the grace of God through faith and repentance and baptism, then how do we do maintenance on this renewed mind? How do we keep our minds renewed? Well, just like the renovated house, it requires constant care. There's a children's song that's very simple, but also correct. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Right? It's very simple, but I think it's worth saying because not all Christians do these very simple things. Daily being in the Word, attending to prayer, seeking God's face, this is mind renewal 101. It's a different way of thinking that's enabled by the Holy Spirit. So, what are you doing to maintain the renovation? In other words, once the mind has been renovated, that renewal is not maintained by neglecting it. It's not maintained just by a big spiritual high once a year, good as those may be. Spring cleaning is good, but it takes more than that. It's the regular rhythm of a life lived in the presence of God. It's more mundane then. It's a daily submission of our will to His. It's a daily vigilance that's wary of any dirt or external influence that could compromise the renovation. It means being cautious and thoughtful and ready to evaluate what we listen to and what we watch, our attitude, our heart. Constant renewal means looking at our lives and seeing where we may need improvement. Although we may be satisfied with the progress that we have made by the help of the Spirit, we're not yet perfect. We are works in progress. The to-do list is never empty. Well, if the mind is renewed and it stays renewed, then the body follows, which we offer as a living sacrifice. The obvious result of this renewal, this renovation, is transformation. 
And this gets to the what and the for what purpose questions. What is the goal of renewal? Transformation. Well, what does Paul mean by transformation? Well, the word that he uses here, and I put on the uh, outline on your order of worship, is the Greek word metamorphane, which is simply the verb form of a word that's familiar to us, metamorphosis, the process by which the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. So he means change, of course, but what does that change look like? Well, Paul places transformation in direct opposition to being conformed to the world. So whatever it is, it's change from something that is conformed to the world, like the world, molded and modeled after the world, to something that is now distinct from the world. Distinctness is the key concept. The renovated and now transformed person is not made in the mold of the world, of the crowd. There's a difference, a distinctness. Not separate, as if we take ourselves out of the world, but distinct. In the world, but not of the world. The transformed person is like a house that in the midst of a neighborhood of decay and dilapidation is restored, renewed, and transformed. It shines now with that new coat of paint. As you drive by, you see it because it's distinct from its surroundings. In the neighborhood, but not of the neighborhood. So the renewal of the mind is inward, but the transformation shows. It shines. Be transformed. The idea of being transformed is an interesting one to pursue in the New Testament because the, the word appears only in three places um, or, or uh, sections in the New Testament. One of them is here. But if we look at the others, you'll notice that transformation everywhere else involves the idea of glory. And so I'd like to uh, just take a moment and look at these other passages. The first one is in Matthew 17. In fact, the parallel where the word is used also is in Mark 9. Uh, some of our Bible classes may have discussed this passage earlier this morning. But let's look at the, at the account in Matthew 17, the first place that this word transform or metamorphosis appears. And I'll just read a, a couple of verses here. Matthew 17, beginning with verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And then uh, Moses and Elijah appear. God speaks his word and says, Listen to my son. And then verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face ground uh, face down to the ground, terrified. So the word transfigured there is the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans 12. And we should just translate it like it is there, transformed. Jesus was transformed before them. And the main purpose of this event is to show the superiority of Jesus over Moses and Elijah. But I want to focus on that transformation. His face 
shone like the sun. White light was emanating from his clothing. This must have been quite a sight. This is a brief glimpse of the glory of God in the flesh. If you look over at 2 Peter 1, when he talks about this event, he says that this was the sign of Jesus receiving glory from the Father. In other words, this is a sneak preview for these disciples of the glory of the Lord, His resurrection, His exaltation. Do you know what glory means? And that's not a common word we use nowadays. Maybe that's one of those kind of church words now. We sing and use that word glory a lot. In its Hebrew and Greek, one of the, the main meanings of glory, most basic meanings of glory is simply brightness or radiance. You ever gone to a, a movie theater, you know, a matinee in the afternoon, and then you come out from this dark theater into the sun shining in a clear blue sky, and you can't see anything? That's a lot of glory. When Jesus was transformed, he was shining like that. And what did the disciples do when Jesus was transformed and they heard God's voice? They fell face down. Not only because he was too bright for them to look at, but it says because they were afraid. Rather than basking in the glory and hearing God's word, they hid their faces from the Messiah as if veiling themselves from the light of the world. The final passage in the New Testament with this word transform is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Paul here, in a mysterious passage, is discussing the covering or the veil that Moses sometimes wore after he had been speaking with God and his face was shining brightly. Paul then mentions that when the Old Covenant is read, in a certain sense, with a veil or a covering or a barrier, then he contrasts that with the removal of that veil. And so, we'll begin here in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Listen to this. This is good. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, reflect the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into His image from glory to glory, which comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul says that when we hear God's word and we recognize in it the proclamation of Christ and of the Spirit, with unveiled faces, we all reflect the glory of the Lord. And this encounter transforms us from what we were into the glorious image of Christ. And with what, he says? Ever-increasing glory. Changed from glory into glory. Brighter and brighter we shine. Transformation, then, is about glory. It's about shining. And like mirrors, we turn to God and we reflect the depth and magnitude of His glory, shining 
his light. Unlike the disciples who saw the glory and heard God's word and hid their faces, turning away from the Lord. Instead, when we turn to the Lord, as it says here in verse 16, and we hear God's word, we have seen his glory. That's the transformation. Our minds are renewed and we become like Christ. He shines, we shine. He was not conformed to this world, neither are we. We are transformed to look like Him and be like Him, and then we can discern what God's will is for us. We know what is good, what is pleasing to God, and perfect. We know it, we pursue it, and we do it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we then become the good, pleasing, perfect sacrifice that He desires from us. Be transformed. So why? For what purpose are we renewed? Again, it is for transformation. And what does that transformation look like? Again, in light of these passages, it's when we turn our face toward God. It's when we turn our attention and hear His Word. And through it, we gaze upon the face of the true word, Jesus Christ. It means that we are transformed into his brightness to become a daughter or a son of God. It means distinctness. Just like my dad's newly painted car, it shines. It's noticeable. It sticks out from the crowd. It's different the transformed person emanates bright light. When we are turned toward God, like a mirror, we reflect the profound depth of the goodness and the beauty, the radiance and the love of God. But we acknowledge it's easier to hide our faces. It's easier to put up the veil. Sometimes we don't want to be noticed, at least not for that. We don't want to stick out from the crowd. It is difficult. So do you hide your face from God? Is your light dimmed? Do you need renewal, renovation? We all need renewal. I think we're all looking for renewal. Well, those practices that I mentioned earlier, reading the Word, being attentive in prayer, turning our face toward God, looking to Christ, seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit, these are good places to start alongside the fellowship and prayers of our Christian brothers and sisters. We're about to sing a song. It's really a prayer to the Lord Jesus to make us new. So I encourage all of us to really think about these words, and if we're going to sing them, to mean these words. And I ask all of us, how will we respond to this? We can respond from where we stand in our hearts to God. We can respond um, and uh, be renewed uh, by speaking with the person or the loved one next to us. 
you may want to respond by coming forward and asking for the prayers of the church. Now is the time, whatever your needs are, please come forward as we stand and sing.